I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to consider today the first 11 verses of this chapter and a message entitled, Get Ready for the Day of the Lord. Get Ready for the Day of the Lord. The June 24th cover of Time magazine has the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres standing off the coast of Tuvalu, which is an island nation. And the cover reads as follows, rising seas, fleeing residents, disappearing villages, our sinking planet. Now, if this prediction of the sinking planet were true, shouldn't we get ready or do something to prepare? Most of us are skeptical of such warnings, whether it be on the cover of Time magazine or in some other sphere of life. And we have the mentality, we'll just take our chances. We'll just see how things go. Nothing I can really do about it anyway. I'm not really going to be concerned with it. I'm certainly not going to worry about it. But perhaps this same mentality is why people ignore God's warnings about the things that are to come. Perhaps that's why people aren't ready to meet the Lord and why they're not ready for the day of the Lord. And there's some amazing events that lie in the future of the world. God's word has told us about them. The apostle Paul is instructing and encouraging the Thessalonica church and reminding them of what they had been taught and also what they were to be anticipating. I begin reading in first Thessalonians chapter five and verse one. This is what the Bible says about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. The phrase, the day of the Lord, represents a series of prophetic events that are outlined both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The word day is used in the scripture in several different ways. It's used in its most plain sense as in the account of creation as a 24-hour day and presented to us as the normal rhythm of time as God created it. Sometimes day in the scripture refers to the daylight period between the hours of the dawning of the sun and the setting of the sun. And at other times it appears to be representing a period of time, similar to how we would reference something. If we were to say, you remember back in the day, and we say, you remember back in the day, we're not referring to a specific day. 
we are referring to a time back in the past, and we're thinking about a more general sense of time. The day of the Lord is found numerous times in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, mostly in Joel and Zephaniah. A similar term on that day occurs many more times in the Old Testament along the same lines. There are numerous synonyms for the day of the Lord, including the day, the day of God's wrath, the day of calamity, the day of battle, the day of salvation, the day of his coming, and also the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When we come to the New Testament, we find the day of Jesus Christ mentioned, and then the day of the Lord, as we do here in Thessalonians. In the New Testament, there are also other synonyms for the day of the Lord, including the day of judgment, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of God's wrath, the day of God, and the great day of God Almighty. And there are a couple of things that we are absolutely certain about regarding the day of the Lord. One is that it will be a time of judgment. God has already won the victory at the cross, and if we are in Christ Our sins have been forgiven, and believers will not experience judgment for our sin in the same way that an unbeliever will. Uh, We will receive reward eternally for how we've used the things that have been entrusted to us. But our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. We have right standing with God because of the righteousness of Jesus that is imputed to us by faith in Christ and Christ alone. What we also know about the day of the Lord is it will be a time of deliverance and blessing for God's people because we have the eternal state in mind. And there are several end times essentials that are non-negotiable that we must believe if we're going to hold to the Bible and say that we believe in what God has told us in his word. And those include the literal bodily return of Jesus Christ, the judgment that is to follow, and the reality of heaven for those who are in Christ, and the reality of hell for those who have rejected God's grace in Christ. And prophecy in the Bible is incredibly important. Uh, Prophecy demonstrates that God is sovereign over all of history. Not only does God know what's going to happen, but God is sovereign over all that is happening, and God is working out his perfect will within everything that is taking place. Prophecy gives us confidence in the Bible to help us know that this is God's word. Prophecy helps us to have hope so that we can persevere regardless of what the circumstances are. We know no matter how dark it is that God is light and our trust and our hope is in him. And then prophecy purifies us. It purifies us in the sense that it prepares us to be in the presence of the Lord. And it reveals that we, in fact, belong to the Lord. And our desire to be purified is our desire to be more like Jesus, our Savior, and to be more like our Father, who is holy in every way. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know uh, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he himself is pure. So the New Testament tells the story of the Messiah's coming to the earth some 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. And when he finished his work on this earth, having lived the perfect life, though he was tempted at every point as we are, he was without sin. Having fulfilled the law of God, having given himself on the cross in our place, taking our sins upon himself, 
having been buried in a borrowed tomb and then being raised from the dead on the third day, he ascended back some days later into the presence of the Father with the promise that he was coming again. Paul's words that follow here in 1 Thessalonians 5 are by no means a complete theology of what he anticipates, but it is a pastoral address to settle them and to guide them toward that day. And I think 1 Thessalonians 5 is a focus on the second coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord that we are to anticipate. So my question for you today is this, how can we get ready for the day of the Lord? How can we be prepared spiritually to meet the Lord? But I should also ask another question because the reality is every single day around 151,000 people die on the face of the planet and they leave this life and they enter in to the next. And should we be numbered among one of those 151,000 people on any given day and our time on this earth be over, will we be prepared to be with the Lord? Or to ask the question another way, how can we live so that we are ready to die? How can we live so that we're anticipating what the Lord has for us? And I think the first way the scripture indicates here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that we need to stay alert. We need to stay alert. Look again in verse 1. He says, about the times and the seasons, brothers, you don't need anything written to you. Now, I'm amazed at that statement because remember, Paul and his missionary co-laborers, they had not been at that church for very long. But yet the gospel and the word of God seems to have taken root at such a depth that these people had a very solid foundation, that they understood the basics of the gospel. They understood the reality of what was to come to the point that Paul says, you don't even need anything written to you. But then he begins to expound on it, even so, to give them further clarity about what they already knew and why they could have confidence in it. The Thessalonians have been taught about the return of Jesus. Times here focuses on the time frame itself. Seasons concerns the characteristic of the period. So we're thinking about the general period of time, but then we're also thinking about what's going to be happening during that period of time. You remember that Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day because they could not discern the signs of the times in Matthew chapter 16. As believers, we are to study the scripture and we're also to look at the world around us. We're to have our foundation in the word of God and then we're to consider the things that are taking place in the world that we live in so that we too can be aware of the times and the seasons. And in verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, Jesus said that no man knows the day or the hour of his coming, but there is to be a sense of anticipation. But specifically, what he's referring to here are people who will not be alert and people who will not expect his coming when he arrives. The day of the Lord will come like a thief upon the world who is not expecting it. And the people will generally find themselves unprepared because they are not anticipating the things to come. He says, I don't need to write to you about this. And this should not overtake you like a thief because you already know what to expect. But he says, here's what people are like when 
They're not expecting anything. They're going to say peace and security, verse 3, and then sudden destruction is going to come upon them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the scene is, in general, the world will be eating and drinking, buying and selling, building and planting, marrying and giving in marriage when Jesus comes again, and they'll not be ready. To illustrate the circumstance, someone compared the situation to an artist who goes just offshore when the tide is low. He climbs up on a rock and he turns himself back to the shore and he begins to paint the scene of the beautiful seaside and the village that is on it. And he gets so caught up in this painting that he's he's working on that he doesn't realize that the tide is rising to the point that the water gets so high that he's now in danger and there is no way to escape. People will say peace and security and destruction will come. Like the inevitable pains of labor upon a pregnant woman, there will be no escape. So Paul draws a contrast between those who are not expecting the Lord and those who are and are living in a way that they are alert and ready. Verse 4, but you brothers are not in the dark for this day to overtake you. Verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. The dominant influence in a believer's life is to be light. Light belongs to the day. And there are these clear competing themes in the scripture of darkness, which represents sin and separation and evil and all the things that are against God. And then light, which represents holiness and the character of God and all the things that are good and all the things that are righteous. And Paul says, you're children of the light. So that should be the dominant characteristic of your life. John wrote it this way in 1 John 5 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, verse 7, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. As followers of Jesus, we know enough to know that we need to stay alert. On December the 26th of 2004, the third largest earthquake ever recorded by seismograph occurred deep beneath the Indian Ocean. This earthquake registered 9.1 magnitude on the Richter scale, and the shock waves produced tsunami waves more than 100 feet in height that traveled 500 miles per hour and reached a radius of 3,000 miles. This was known as the deadliest tsunami in all of history with 227,898 people losing their lives at one time. But reportedly, there was one people group living right in its path that miraculously survived without a single casualty. The Mokan are an Austronesian ethnic group that live on the open seas from birth to death. Their handcrafted wooden boats called kabong function as houseboats for people who live essentially as sea gypsies. Mokan children learn to swim before they learn to walk. It's said that they can see twice as clearly underwater as people who live on the land. And if there were an underwater breath-holding contest, these people would no doubt win hands down. But it wasn't any of these skills that saved them from that tsunami. What saved them from the tsunami was their intimacy with the ocean. 
Because you see the Moken know the moods and the messages of the ocean better than any trained oceanographer. They can read the waves the same way that we can read street signs. And on the day of the tsunami and when the earthquake took place, an amateur photographer from Bangkok was taking pictures of the Moken when she became concerned about what she saw. As the sea started to recede, many of the Moken were crying. They knew what was about to happen. They recognized that the birds had stopped chirping, that the cicadas had gone silent, that the elephants were headed toward higher ground, and that the dolphins were swimming farther out to sea. There were fishermen in the same vicinity as the Moken who ended up being blindsided by the tsunami and had no survivors. And one Moken survivor said they were collecting squid. They didn't know how to look. The waves and the birds and the cicadas and the elephants and the dolphins were speaking to those fishermen, but sadly, they didn't know how to listen or to recognize the signs. A local anthropologist who speaks Moken said the water receded very fast and one wave, just one very small wave came and they recognized that it was not ordinary and they went into action. I wonder if we are as in tune with the word of God and with the Spirit of God, as these people were with their circumstances. So that when we see the signs of the times, when we see the seasons, and we understand the things that are before us, that we live in a way that we are alert, and we're ready to meet the Lord. The second instruction here is that we need to be serious. We need to be serious. Paul writes, we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. The word there is sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious. We must be sober. Now, as Christians, because we have a sacred responsibility to make Jesus known so that others are warned and so that they too might know the life that we know and have the anticipation that we have, we cannot afford to be asleep. We cannot afford to not be sober and ready. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled, Awake, Awake, and he illustrated the foolishness of Christian sleeping in three illustrations. He said, one is a city that's suffering under a plague and the official is walking the streets crying, bring out the dead. All the while, a doctor is lying asleep somewhere who has the cure, but he's not helping people. He's not serious about the task at hand. The second illustration is a passenger ship that's in a storm and it's blowing up to the place where it's going to crash and be capsized and people are going to perish. All the while, the captain who should be steering this ship is asleep. And Spurgeon said that's what it's like for Christians who are not sober and serious about their responsibility. Or he said it's like a man who is a prisoner and who's about to be executed while there's a man with a letter of pardon in the next room. But the man with the letter of pardon in the next room is asleep and he's not serious about the task that's been given to him. And the word for us is that we need to stay awake and we need to be serious. Now, what does it mean to be sober? It means to live a clear and steady life doesn't mean that we don't have a good time or we don't laugh or we don't enjoy the, the uh, happiness that life brings and the joy that God gives to us. Certainly, we're supposed to be thankful to God for those things and relishing in all that life brings our way that is good and helpful and holy. But what it indicates is if there is this certainty of the day of the Lord, then we should be motivated to live consistently with who we are 
in the Lord. We should not be lax and unprepared. We should be spiritually alert. We should be firm in our faith. We should have courage and strength, and we should have glad anticipation as we look forward to the future. And Paul gives some specific instructions on how we can do this. He doesn't doesn't just say be be sober and be serious, but he says, here's what you need to do. Verse 8, put on the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. So the image he gives us is that of a soldier. A soldier who is prepared for battle will have the gear that he needs. He will recognize that there is, in fact, a battle at hand. He will be serious about the task that's been given to him, and he will wage war when necessary against the enemy that would come upon him. We are in a spiritual battle. We struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Uh, The struggle is real, and we have to be sober and serious about what's at hand if we're going to be effective for the Lord. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 and 11, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength and put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. A soldier's breastplate protected his vital organs because that was the area that was the most vulnerable. The soldier's helmet was to protect his head from deadly blows. And what we have in view here is faith. Faith, first of all, believes that God can be trusted. So before faith is put into action, we believe that God is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we're trusting that God is trustworthy. We're saying God can be trusted in his person. But we're also saying that we have faith that God can do things by his power that God and God alone can do. God is the one who can speak creation into being. God is the one who can give us a faithful word to know about him and to know about his plan for the ages and to know about our hope for the future. God is the one who can take sinners who are dead in their trespasses and their sins and raise them to life in Christ. God is the one who has the power to help us through the difficulties of life and over the obstacles that we encounter and through the struggles that we engage in in this life. And then we're hoping also in God's promises for the future. Because God has said these are the things that are coming, we must believe that and be sober-minded about it. Love is mentioned here as well, which includes delight in and devotion to God when the Christian life is synthesized and we present it in its most essential form. We understand that the Christian life is about loving God and it's about loving people. It's about knowing our creator and honoring him and it's about loving people who don't yet know him and also loving those who do. That's our charge, to love God and to love people. And this love is to be something that is a part of this sober-mindedness and this serious approach to life and to eternity. Hope is the hope of salvation uh, in the future aspect of God's completed work in our lives. So there's a very real sense in which we have been saved, that there was a transaction that took place, that there was a legal declaration that took place, whereby when we turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus, we were justified by faith and God declared us righteous in him. The righteousness of Jesus was imputed to us. And then we are being saved in terms of our salvation being worked out and our growing and our likeness of Christ, we would refer to that more specifically as our sanctification because we're in right standing with God, but now we're growing to be more like Jesus. 
But there's a future day coming when we will be saved and we'll be glorified and we'll see all of the fullness of what God has done for us when we are in his presence. And we'll realize the reality of the beauty of Jesus and what it means to know him and walk with him by faith. Paul wrote in Romans 13 and verse 11, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. One of my favorite illustrations of the Christian life is that it's like a race. If you're going to run a race, uh, you have to at some point come to the starting line. And the starting line would be that point in which you understand who God is. You understand that he has made you in his image, but you're a sinner and your sin separates you from God. That God has made the way for you to come back to him through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to come to the Father but by him. And when you come to that starting line, understanding God, understanding yourself, and understanding the gospel, then by repentance and faith, you enter into the race. You enter into life with God as a follower of Jesus. The remainder of that race represents your life on this earth. Nobody knows how long each of our races is going to be. It might be a short one or it might be a long one. But the point is, as we run that race, we're running it with God in our lives, with Jesus as our Savior, and with hope as our constant companion, because we know that salvation is now nearer to us than when we believed. And one day, you're going to come to the finish line. That finish line is either going to be when you draw your last breath on this earth and you go to be in the presence of God, or that finish line is going to be, in fact, when the Lord returns. That's the race that we run. And the hope that we have in the meantime is that everything God has said is true and we can trust in him. And then there's a third and final instruction. You need to encourage and build one another up. Encourage and build one another up. Look again in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. God's wrath will be poured out on the wicked eternally. But to contrast that, Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be saved. And this is what God has for us. And in the meantime, we are to encourage and comfort one another and we're to, we're to build each other up. Now, I like the way Paul often encourages churches in the letters in the New Testament. Even when he's dealing with something very difficult and he says it very directly, he will typically also inc include words of encouragement. So he's like, well, I, I got something here that you really need to work on, but let me tell you what you're doing well. And really, that's a pattern for us, whether we're dealing with our own children or we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ or we're thinking about helping each other grow in the faith, is we need to be people who are encouraging and comforting one another and building each other up. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 in verse 24 and 25 says this, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now we have a tendency in this individualistic society that we live in to think about our faith in, in individual terms primarily. 
But faith in the New Testament, while we enter into the relationship with God, certainly as individuals, we don't go as groups. We come one by one. It's lived out in community and in fellowship. We see the picture all the way back in the garden of what uh, communion together was intended to be and what fellowship with God was supposed to be like. And we see all the way in the future of what communion and fellowship with God is going to be like in heaven around the throne as we bring him honor and glory forever. But in the meantime, we're not supposed to be living as Lone Ranger Christians. We're to be living together in community. And that's how God has designed us. And our spiritual enemy does some of his best work by isolating people. Because if he can isolate you, he can discourage you. He can more easily tempt you. He can cause you to believe things that are not true. And if you're not careful, you can get yourself in a world of hurt. Several years ago, former American prisoners of war were interviewed to determine what methods the enemy had used that had been most effective in breaking their spirit when they were in those prisoner of war camps. Researchers learned that the prisoners didn't break down from the physical deprivation or the torture as quickly as they did, listen to this, to solitary confinement or from being frequently moved around and separated from friends. It was further learned that the soldiers drew their greatest strength from the close attachments that they had formed in these small military units to which they belonged. And I think these simple observations give us some insight into why Christians need fellowship with the Lord and with one another so that we can be loyal to the Lord. That our own personal relationship with God, as vital as that is, is not sufficient to, pr- to promote in us and to develop in us spiritual maturity. God intended that it would be done together so that we would not miss out on God's benefits of being together in community in the church. So what does that look like practically? It means that we're going to look out for one another. It means that if one of us is going astray or uh, we're headed down a path of potential danger, someone in the fellowship should warn us and say the hard things to us if that is necessary. It means that we should provoke love and good works. We should stir that up in one another and be a good example of that. It means we should worship together. And it means we should do it all in anticipation of the day of the Lord. So I close with this statement, and this is the promise that we find in this scripture. In this life and in eternity, the promise is believers live together with the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I love the way that he puts that here, even in the scripture. He says, we may live together with him in verse 10. Friends, that's the point of it all. That you would know and live with the one who made you and loves you and saves you by his grace and that we would be together and we would give worship to God because God is worthy and he has done great things. So my question for you in closing is, are you ready? Are you ready if you're one of those 151,000 people tomorrow that steps out into eternity? Are you ready to be in the presence of God? Because you either be received as his child or you will be judged as one who has rejected him. And you either spend eternity with him in heaven or you will spend eternity forever separated from him in hell. The choice is clear and it brings us 
to a decision of faith. Will you trust him? Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray. Pastor Eric's going to come and uh, lead us in a closing song here in just a moment. I thank God for these truths in his word that are meant to get us ready and also to encourage us. And I just ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you living in such a way that you are sober-minded, serious about the things of the Lord and you're contributing your life in service to the King? Are you running your race well, looking forward to the finish line? If you don't know Christ today, today could be the day of your salvation. Scripture says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you trust in him today as your Savior and Lord? Father, thank you for the blessing of gathering together as your people. As we have sung songs today and given an offering and celebrated the body and the blood of Jesus and now heard from your word, we are your people and we love you and we praise you. We thank you for Jesus. And while we realize there are many difficulties and hardships that we endure in this life, there's something far better to come. And we long for that. We look forward to being with you forever. And in the meantime, I pray that you'd find us faithful. Help us to be steady, consistent, honorable in what we do. And to exalt your name through our lives, our families, our vocations, and through this church. We give this time over to you now, Lord, as we close. And if there are decisions that need to be made, I pray that people would come as we sing. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.